Kirsten back from their mission trip to California. Uh, and uh, make sure you ask them how things went. It's really neat having missionaries in our own church, isn't it? I just go out and do things and come back and share. How many of you have been on the church website in the last two weeks? One, two. <laughs> okay, before I begin, um, let me encourage you to go to our website. Now in the past, the website's been kind of static in that it you know, really didn't change much or anything. And uh, we're doing some things on the website. For instance, for the last two Sundays, the sermon has been video uh, as well as audio. And uh, Terry is back there today uh, with her camera setting up and we're working on making some improvements along that line as well. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of neat things happening at Crossway, a lot of great things. Several years ago, Karen and I attended a church where the, the pastor did a series, a sermon series, that he titled, Sins That Christians Wink At. Sins That Christians Wink At. And the sermon series is about how Christians really protest loudly over some sins while totally overlooking or at least minimizing other sins. You know, we condemn drunkenness and adultery and theft while at the same time we ignore greed and gluttony and pride, uh, maybe because they hit too close to home for some of us. Today I kind of want to reverse that. Today I want to look at a virtue that is completely underrated, utterly underrated. I want us to look today at the virtue of unity. God likes unity. God wants unity. In fact, Christ died on the cross so that we could have unity. Yet Christians are divided into hundreds, literally hundreds of different groups, sects, divisions. And we really don't think that's so bad. I mean, that's kind of the norm now. We think that's, that's normal for there to be division. And many times, even within a local church, there, there are individuals uh, who pride themselves on bringing discord and disunity into the church. So today, I want to talk about unity. And I'm gonna put on my Captain Obvious hat to begin with this morning. And my first point is, God wants unity in his church. God wants it. Uh, let's look at a few scripture verses here. Psalm 133, verse 1. Psalm 133, verse 1. Says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That's a pretty plain statement, isn't it? Can't, can't really get around that very well. You know, we, can, we can't skirt that one. 
How about Ephesians 4, 1 through 3? The Apostle Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, I bet you already knew that, that God wants unity. The problem isn't knowing what God wants. I find the problem often is in knowing how do we do that? How do we bridge what I call the knowing-doing gap? How do we do it? What does it look like? Well, I want to give you three false ideas. First of all, before we get into what the Bible says, how we get unity in the church. Here's false idea number one. Unity comes through complete doctrinal agreement. Okay? We can only have unity with those who agree with us doctrinally. Now, within Christianity, there is a whole spectrum of theology out there. Now, everything from liberal to fundamental. And within fundamental, there's, there's dispensational theology and there's, there's covenant theology. And concerning the return of Christ, there's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And you know what? God knew that we would disagree on doctrine. Therefore, he did not base our unity on doctrinal agreement. Because if he did, there could never be unity within the church. So, false idea number one, unity comes through complete doctrinal agreement. Romans 14.1 says, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Okay? Don't argue. Don't fight. Don't make that a basis for disunity in the church. Here's false idea number two. Unity comes through proximity. Now, what I mean by that is the idea that we can only have unity with people that we are with. In other words, we can't have unity with people who go to a different church than we do because we're not with them. 
This idea states that we can only have unity within a local church, but not within the universal church. And Paul dispels that idea uh, all through his writings where he talks about unity in, in the universal church, where even the Gentile churches were taking up collections for the Jewish church in Jerusalem to help them out. You see, unity is an attitude, not a physical presence. So we can have unity with other believers, even though we don't meet with them, even though we just might meet them at a gas station and have them pray with you. You know, there's a unity. Ask Jared about what happened last week. What a story, okay? False idea number three, unity comes through control. This idea is that we will have unity because it's my way or the highway. Christians must somehow be forced to be like me and I'm gonna do everything in my power to manipulate and control people until they are just as I am. Of course, control is the very foundation of legalism. So where does unity come from? If it doesn't come from those three areas, this brings us to the how. I got three answers for us today How do we have unity? Unity, number one, unity is a fruit of the Spirit. Unity is a fruit of the Spirit evidenced in believers who submit to the Spirit's leading. We can try all we want in our own fleshly energy and effort to try to somehow produce unity and it won't work because it's a fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Uh, the, the word of there in the Greek, it's genitive, and, and it means that which belongs to or, or that which comes to us from the Holy Spirit. The word bond here, it is the Greek word for glue, okay? The, the unity of the Spirit is the glue that comes from peace. Unity comes from the Spirit and the glue of peace that holds us together. In other words, peace is what the Spirit uses to produce unity. And remember, peace is also a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, then we have a peace. And that peace then results in unity. Therefore, A lack of unity is a spiritual problem. Not just an attitudinal problem. 
but a spiritual problem. And there's a couple ways that, that we can hinder the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Our defiant disobedience to the Holy Spirit grieves the Holy Spirit. Our failure to yield to the Holy Spirit's working in our life grieves the Holy Spirit. The next verse goes on to say that, that not putting away bitterness, not putting away wrath or anger or evil speaking, these are all examples of how we grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 32 would go on to state that not being kind, not being tender-hearted, not forgiving other people, that grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because these are things that God has done for us. And when we don't do them to others, that, that, that's, that's going you know, 180 degrees different from what God has called us to be and to do. The other thing we can do is we can quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the spirit. Now, I associate the word quenching with putting out a fire, okay? When I was in Boy Scouts, we were always told when we go on camping trips, we're all done, make sure you quench the fire. Pour enough water on it that there is no life left in it. And I think that's a wonderful picture of what happens when we ignore the Holy Spirit. We ignore him long enough and we will quench. We will take all the life that the Holy Spirit wants to produce within us and we'll put it out. When we ignore his leading, when we ignore his directing, when we ignore his promising, or prompting in our life, then we are quenching the very work of the Holy Spirit that, that God gave us the Holy Spirit to produce within us. If the Holy Spirit is not allowed to do his work within believers, then all unity is doomed to failure. Sooner or later. Colossians 3, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3, 3 says, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behave like mere men? Now, if the word carnal is new to you, <clears throat> it's a word that the Bible uses to describe an individual who's living their life apart from the Holy Spirit's work within them. He says, if there's strife, if there's division, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is not at work and you are behaving like 
mere men. The idea is that we are operating just within our own strength, within our own power, within our own motives, our own thinking. We are acting as if we did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. Just mere men. Secondly, unity comes from a heart of love. Now, love is, is one of those terms that you can't really define. You know, it's kind of subjective. I, I've had young people come into my office when I was a pastor, and, and they, were, they were said, you know, we, we want to get married. And I would ask them, why do you want to get married? And they would go, oh, we're in love. Oh, that's nice. Uh, tell me, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Oh, when I'm around her, my stomach churns. I can hardly breathe. You know, I, I, I get dizzy. I'm thinking, the guy needs a doctor, not a wife. <laughs> you know. How do you define love? Well, the Bible doesn't so much define love as it describes love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, called the great love chapter, kind of describes love this way. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love is long-suffering towards people and patient in all circumstances. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't force its way upon other people. Love is not selfish. Love rejoices when the truth wins out even if we were wrong. It keeps no record of being wronged. I've had other people come into my office, to my study, when I was pastoring, and they, they were on their way to get a divorce, but they stopped in my office on the way to see if I had a magic wand that could uh, you know, heal their marriage. And I would talk with them a little bit, and you know, if it was if it was 1990, for instance, you know, one of them would say, "Well, back in 1975, you know, she did this, and then 78, he did that, and then you know, in 82, you know, and it's like you're keeping a list of wrongs, you're keeping a list of offenses. Love doesn't do that. 
Love doesn't keep a list. In Ephesians 4, 2, it says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And love is a fruit of the Spirit. How is it that we can make allowances for each other's differences? Karen and I have been married for 53 years, okay? Karen and I have this script that we prepared once for a Valentine banquet. And uh, we were both up on the stage and, and we, we had our script. And it was called 101 Ways That Karen and I Are Different, okay? She grew up in Wisconsin, she likes butter. I grew up in Washington. I like margarine, okay? When we go to Eastern Washington, she likes to go over Stevens Pass because it's beautiful and scenic drive. I like to go over Snoqualmie Pass because it's fast, it's four lanes, and you get there. 101 ways that we are total opposites. Talk about irreconcilable differences. <laughs> and by the way, I believe in irreconcilable differences. And they are the spice of life. It's the grounds for a great marriage. How can we get along if we're so different? Well, it says here that you do it only through love. You know, God likes variety. If he didn't, you all would be just like me. Okay? There would be no country music. All right? No Pepsi-Cola, only Coke. Yeah, but God didn't make everybody like me because God likes variety. And if you are different, God made you different. And by the way, we're all different. We look different. We think different. We act different. And this could cause real problems in the world and in the church if it wasn't for love. Love, a fruit of the Spirit. There's a third element that we need for unity. And the third element is the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter two, let me read verses one through five. <clears throat> Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit, by the way, you notice we got love and spirit all right there, okay, first two points. If any tenderness and compassions, 
then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You notice the number of times in there. It talked about the mind, having the mind of Christ, the mindset as Christ Jesus. The mind of Jesus is a humble mind. Humility deals with our attitude towards self. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You got that? Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's the opposite of being high-minded. It's humbleness of mind that, that is the sum of a servant's heart a servant's attitude. It's an emptying of self. Without that, there's no desire to serve anyone. And if we don't have the desire to serve, then we are going to want to be served. And that's where disunity comes in. Without it, there's no esteeming others better than ourselves. Without it, we're going to take credit for what God and other people have done in our lives. Without that humility, that that humble spirit and mind, there's no waiting for God's timing. There is, we need to get it done and we need to get it down and I'm going to push it through even if I run over people in the process of doing it. Without it, There's no submission to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The mind of Christ is also a meek mind. Now, meekness is not weakness. Okay? Meekness does not mean weakness. In the Greek, the word in in classical literature is sometimes used of of a wild horse that had been tamed. The the horse still had the old power and the fire and the determination, but now it yielded that to the master. That's what meekness is. It's power under control. A meek mind is is a surrendered mind. And might I add that meekness is sweetness, not weakness. The mind of Christ is also a long-suffering mind. See, a mind of Christ bears long with the weaknesses of others. Think about your own relationship with God. How long has God put up with you? 
I got saved when I was five. He's been putting up with me for over 65 years. You know, he's a long-suffering God. This has everything to do with our attitude toward people who are not like us. Long-suffering mind doesn't try to force people to change. Long-suffering mind doesn't force people to change. It leaves that up to the Holy Spirit. Well, why is it important that we have a long-suffering mind? Well, in case you haven't noticed it yet, we live in a hostile world. And yet, we are to love that hostile world to Christ. How can we do that? If everything wrong they do makes us angry and we lash out against them, we're never going to reach them for Christ. We need a long-suffering mind as Christ. If ever we needed the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. It's now. So what does unity look like? Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 describes, describes unity incarnate in the person of Christ says, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. How far do we have to take this servanthood stuff? Well, how far did Jesus take it? He took it to the point of willingly dying on the cross. For those who say, well, Christians shouldn't be a doormat, the cross was the biggest doormat in the history of the world. Unity looks like servanthood. The actions of Christ were were servant actions. He became a man for the sole purpose of becoming a servant. God left the glories of heaven that he'd had throughout all of eternity, that union with the Father, everything. He gave that up for the purpose of becoming a servant. And what are we willing to give up? to become a servant. Getting our own way all the time. In Matthew 10, 45, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we want to be like Christ, then we must become servants. There's no way to get around it. 
no way whatsoever. But being a servant goes contrary to our human nature. By our human nature is we are selfish. We are self-centered. We want our way. When does that happen? Oh, I think about age one. I mean, look at a newborn baby sometime. You know, the world just, it goes around them. We have images. If we become a servant, we're going to be mistreated. There's going to be a loss of dignity. Uh, Oh, we're going to lose our will or our purpose. Yes, all of those things might happen. Jesus on the cross was mistreated and lost his dignity. It's contrary to our image of a leader, isn't it? And yet Christ was a servant. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25, says Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Man's way is to lord over other people, to oppress other people. Man's way leads to quarreling and fighting and disunity. God's way leads to meeting the needs of other people. Even at the risk of my needs not being met. God's way leads to unity because people want to follow a person that they believe has their best interests at heart. In my life, I have had people who have, let me come up with a good word here, criticized me, (laughs) okay? They have been critical of something I've said or done. Now they fall into two categories. First are the people who I know do not have my best interest at heart. Okay. Those people I pretty well ignore. I mean, there's probably some truth to what they say. But you know who I listen to? You know whose direction I follow? Those people I know that have my best interest in their heart. There are people here today. So quite a few of you actually. That if you came up to me and said Cal, there, you know, there's an issue I want to talk to you about in your life or whatever, I would listen to. Because I know you have 
my best interest in your heart. If we're going to have unity, people have got to know that we have their best interest in our heart. You know, praying for unity is a lot like paying for patience. You know, you ever heard, don't pray for patience? Yeah, yeah. Why? Because tribulation worketh patience. If you're going to grow in patience, there's a process you have to go through in order to get it, and that process involves more tribulation in your life. Kind of like praying, Lord, help me love the unlovable. How do you do that? Well, the Lord will bring somebody unlovable along, you know. See, there's a process. And by the way, it's wrong to say don't pray for patience because what you're really saying is that patience is not worth going through the tribulation that will build it. Well, when we pray for unity, we are asking God to do a whole process of things. You know, it's not like you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and, oh, I have unity now, you know. No. What you're praying for is a process that God would take you through and me through and our whole church through, okay, that involves having the mind of Christ and yielding to the Spirit and all those things. I've come up with a prayer. I'm going to close with it. Maybe Just bow your heads. And if you can, <clears throat> in your heart, Pray this prayer with me. Lord, make me a servant who loves others more than self, who has the mind of Christ and is totally sold out to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, I think anything less than that will lead to disunity which God hates. Father, thank you for our time together today. And Father, I know in some churches this this sermon might be preached (coughs) because there's a problem in the church of disunity. Father, I'm pleased to preach this sermon in a church where there is unity. And Father, I pray that unity would just grow. And Father, may we truly love others more than self. Father, give us the the same mind of Christ who humbled himself, became obedient to the servant. And Father, may we be totally sold out to the leading of the Holy Spirit. For I pray in Christ Jesus' name, amen.